Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we conclude our series today, Gathered for Worship, with a message titled, Doing All in the Name of Jesus. So turning your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. God's people love to gather to worship in fellowship with each other. And of course, gathering together is not the only expression of our faith. You know that Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so if you're a student and are in university or college, or if you're a farmer and you're planting your crops, or if you're an elderly person and confined to a home, or if you're working online from your home, you know, Christian believers are seeking to do everything that they do to the glory of God. That's also why before we eat a meal, we bow our heads, we give thanks to God for the food he's provided. We want to eat to the glory of God. We want to sleep to the glory of God. And when we interact with friends, neighbors, colleagues, casual acquaintances, or family members, we do so to his glory. And we seek to season our speech with grace so that even the words that exit our mouths are to his glory. And so if it is true that in all endeavors of life, we seek to do all in the name of our Lord Jesus, well, how much more so when we gather together for worship? And in one short week, I've tried to help you, my dear listener, to think about worship. You know, I've tried to show that when we gather for worship, we must do so on God's terms, not on ours. I have during this week talked about some of the elements of worship. They are the things that God has commanded us to do when we worship. And they include singing and praying and reading scripture and listening to preaching. Now, these are not things that we've dreamed up. They're things that God has commanded us to do as we worship. But now today, as I try to wrap up this week, I'd like to conclude with a kind of potpourri of some of the items of worship I've not mentioned. And here I'm going to be less comprehensive. You know, I'll mention some things, but because of time constraints, I won't get into that much detail as we might want. But in so doing, let me simply whet your appetite for a lifetime of thinking about and growing in our practice of congregational worship. So with the time remaining, let me try to put my thoughts into four sections. You know, first, a word to my charismatic brothers and sisters who love to worship more freely than the rest of us. And then second, I want to share three additional things that must be done in worship. These are other required things beyond preaching, praying, reading scripture, and singing. And third, I want to ask and answer if there are still other things that we might yet want to do as we worship. And finally, fourth, I want to talk about the matter of creativity in worship along with the matter of spontaneity. And I want to admit that there's so much more to say and do in our response to God by worshiping him in the fellowship of the local church. So let me just dive right in. First, as I've said, a word to my charismatic brothers and sisters, as well as to the rest of us who really have a sneaking feeling that we'd like to be more open to the spiritual gifts and the leading of the Spirit. So what am I talking about? Some of you might have noticed that in my discussion of the elements of corporate worship that I've not included, that is until now, this whole matter of 1 Corinthians 14, 26 to 33. But let's do that now. The passage is about worship, and it says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. 
If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So at the outset, you know, this passage sounds like it encourages far more, not less participation in the experience of corporate worship. But if we gather in a group of, you know, 250 or more, the likelihood of someone suggesting a song and then someone else with a revelation, still another with a tongue, well, it it takes little imagination to see that this might become difficult to manage without the matter descending into chaos. I mean, after all, who decides who speaks and who suggests a hymn and who suggests a lesson that might be learned for this week? And, And what does one do with those who are speaking, well, false doctrines? So as you can see, without too much imagination, it sounds exciting, but it can be the recipe for chaos and the destruction of the local church. I have at another time when I taught on 1 Corinthians dealt with this text in depth, but even a cursory reading should give us the impression that this seems to be a rather freewheeling service. Now, in my understanding of church structure, there was in the first century church a difference between what happened in small house churches and the meeting of all God's people in a city, that is, say, in the city of Corinth. I mean, some house churches were small, and yet some of the wealthy believers, you know, they'd have villas that would hold several hundred people all at one time. And furthermore, when Paul describes the practice of the Lord's table, that's in 1 Corinthians 11, he seems to be describing a larger gathering than when he describes the freewheel structure of 1 Corinthians 14. It seems to be describing a smaller gathering. I mean, not unlike the midweek home Bible study group as we might think of them today. So from my understanding, it's the smaller group gathering that allows everyone to bring a word, not the larger gathering. Indeed, in Acts chapter 2, the very first church which gathered in Solomon's colonnade in the temple, a church of some 3,000, wouldn't have had everyone speaking. Indeed, Acts chapter 2 verse 42 tells us exactly what happened, and it doesn't sound like 1 Corinthians 14. So from my perspective, the charismatic gifts can and should be used not in the large gathering. But even if you disagree with me on this matter— you'll have to make sure to put the limits on those gifts that Paul puts on them. See, small group gatherings invite a participation of everyone. But in some ways, so do larger groups, except that in the larger gatherings, the participation has to be less freewheeling, more organized, more understood, more directed by leadership. It can't be about individuals suddenly popping up and speaking to the entire group. Well, that's all I've got to say about that. So let me move to my second section. You know, I've talked about singing and prayer and public reading of Scripture and preaching. These are mandated for God's people. Is there anything else? Yes, there is. First, there's the matter of the ordinances or the sacraments, depending on the tradition you come from. So I'm speaking here about, you know, the practice of public baptisms and the congregational participation of God's people at the table of the Lord in communion. So let me start with baptism. From the very beginnings of the church described in Acts chapter 2, baptism was a part of the worshiping people of God. Acts 2.38, 
records Peter calling out to the crowd that heard him preach on that day of Pentecost, and he said, repent and be baptized. And furthermore, verse 41 adds that those who were baptized were 3,000 in that one day. So we have to assume that the baptizing was done by all the apostles, and even so, we have to assume the process took some time. You know, nonetheless, as we read through Acts, the, the presence of baptism was always there. The book of Acts, in all the conversion accounts, continues to mention baptism being performed right alongside of conversion. And this, of course, was in obedience to our Lord's commands in the Great Commission. In making disciples, all the disciples of Jesus were to be baptized in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, let me take you to a little used passage when it comes to baptism, and it's in 1 Corinthians 1.13. The passage speaks about the divisions that had come to exist in the early church. And Paul writes, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? Now, did you notice that last line, were you baptized into Paul? And everyone in the church would have responded, no, no, we were baptized in or by the authority of the name of Jesus into the Father, Son, and Spirit. But that assumes, of course, that every single member of that church had been baptized. Well, I could say a great deal about baptism here, but I'll forego much of the theological discussion about baptism But it should be the practice of the believing community that all who have truly and earnestly repented of their sins, have humbled themselves to Christ, have believed that he alone can save them from their sins because of his finished work on the cross, that all of them are and must be baptized. The idea of having people who claim to believe but are not baptized, well, that's simply foreign to the New Testament. I know someone's going to ask, well, how young should children be baptized? Well, I won't answer the question, but I will say this. All who have truly repented and believed should be baptized as quickly as possible. And furthermore, all those who have been baptized should immediately be put into a discipleship training program of some sort in which they can be taught the basics of the Christian faith and are trained in the life of holiness and in reliance to the Holy Spirit. This simply must be an essential part of Christian worship. The Bible speaks to the community of believers as the body of Christ. Christians are the hands and feet, voice and heart of God. The Spirit who unites us works through us to do His will. The ministries of Back to the Bible Canada rely on these principles. As Dr. John reminds us, the most effective missions, the most effective outreach of the church is almost never accomplished alone. Partnership is always key. We're deeply appreciative for those who join us in mission through their prayers and financial gifts. Faithfully presenting the Word of God across Canada cannot be the effort of a single part. It requires a partnership with God's people. If you wish to support the mission of this ministry or become an 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Let's talk about the practice of celebrating the Lord's table. Again, this also must be a part of our common worship experience. So if baptism is the ordinance that invites us into the life of Christ, 
Well, the Lord's table is the ordinance that invites us into the ongoing participation of the life of Christ. That is to say, once we've confessed Christ as Savior and Lord and have been baptized, we're both invited and commanded to partake in the body and blood of our Lord through the mystery of the Lord's table. Now, our Lord didn't tell us how frequently we should celebrate communion. I mean, some churches celebrate it every week, some once a month, and others less frequently. Again, as far as frequency is concerned, our Lord said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So he didn't tell us. Freedom is given. So for my limited wisdom, the churches that I've led always celebrated the Lord's table once every month and also on Good Friday. But there are other concerns. What does it mean? Celebration of the Lord's table, says Scripture. Well, it's a celebration of the death of our Lord. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So every communion service is a joyous celebration. All who participate in it are joyfully proclaiming, Christ has died for us. His broken body is the means of our spiritual healing, and his shed blood is for the cleansing of our sins. But as has often been said, the Lord's Supper is, in some mystical way, a participation in the benefits of Christ's death on our behalf. Matthew 26, verse 26, Jesus said, Take, eat, this is my body. Now, of course, he couldn't have meant that literally. I mean, his physical body was among them, and no one mistook the the bread for his physical body. We don't believe in transubstantiation, that is, that there's some kind of a miracle at communion where the bread gets transformed into the body of Jesus and the wine into his literal blood. I and mean, that's not what the Bible teaches. But at some level, there is a mystery in participating in the Lord's table. In faith, as we eat and drink, we, we participate in the mystery of his sacrifice, rejoicing in what he's done for us. But here's another question. I mean, should communion be open or closed? While some churches believe that there should be a special service in which only believers are invited, at which the Lord's table is celebrated. But I'm among those who argue that communion should be celebrated at the regular worship service as God's people gather for worship. Are unbelievers at the service? Well, yeah, of course they are. And for that reason, every communion service ought to explain who's invited. But that also allows for those who can't participate to consider how gracious is Jesus who invites them into the benefits of the cross. Now, one last item, and then I'll be done with this section. I think worship should include the act of giving, or as we might put it, the receiving of tithes and offerings. Giving is also an act of worship. Worship should be expensive. It should involve the giving of our first fruits. The first slice of our paycheck goes to God out of joyful celebration of our God. See, I know of churches that you know often break out into joyful applause at the call for the offering. That's an act of celebration. So let me say it again. Worship ought to be expensive. And for that reason, I would argue that churches should continue to make the practice of giving a part of the worship experience. See, I know that the practice of either, you know, giving cash or putting a check into the offering basket, well, that's that's yesterday's business. I mean, many Christians today have never written a check in their lives. You know, they either give online or maybe there's a station in the foyer where people can give in some, you know, electronic format. So here's my suggestion. Whatever format of giving is practiced, I think, that's my personal opinion, that a printed receipt for giving to be placed into the offering can still symbolize 
an open public approach to giving. It allows the church to continue to celebrate that giving is an act of worship. So let me say it again. Worship ought to cost us something. Whether it's the Old Testament saints giving something, none was to appear before the Lord empty-handed. Or 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2 says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. Well, very well. I've said enough about what must be done when we worship. We pray, we sing, we read scripture, we preach, we celebrate the sacraments, and we give. Now, is that the sum total? Yeah, it is. But can we add anything? Well, yeah, we might. We might add something that's in keeping with the thrust of scripture. And that leads me now to the third section about worship. And these are things that might be done, but they're not required. And in this, let's consider several things that various churches do, things that others might want to learn from them, or they might choose not to do them. They're free in either way. You see, some churches regularly repeat one of the ancient creeds of the church, either the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. You know, others repeat some portion of their own statement of faith. Still others might repeat a portion of Scripture, like, for instance, Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Then some churches repeat the Lord's Prayer together. Still others allow for a place in their service where they can, during the singing, you know, go for prayer, either for a need or for confession, or even to receive Christ as Savior and Lord. I mean, churches should think and pray about, you know, what they think can best honor their Lord, as well as minister to the needs of both believers, as well as those who come to seek the Lord. Now, the final and fourth section, I've reserved this to the last. It's the question of creativity, as well as the question of spontaneity during public worship. And there are some who worry that a worship service that is scripted doesn't leave room enough for the moving of the Holy Spirit. I mean, what if they reason the Holy Spirit speaks in the middle of the service? I mean, shouldn't we then put aside all of our other plans and respond to what the Spirit is saying to us at that point in time? Well, at the outset, that kind of talk does seem spiritual, doesn't it? It allows the worshiping community to respond to an immediate need. And if you're given to thinking that spontaneity is openness to the Spirit, well, I pray that you bear with me for just a little while because I'm going to argue against too much spontaneity. So hear me out. The problem with too much spontaneity is that that itself becomes the norm. And furthermore, that takes away from serious planning for worship. Let me give one example. In my example, it's a real one. I'm hard at work throughout the week studying a scripture passage, analyzing it fully until I'm satisfied that I've understood it. Then I carefully craft the intention of a biblical text into a sermon, one that gives glory to God, one that accurately teaches what the scripture itself teaches. See, the godly pastor involved in that activity will do this, the preparation throughout the week in prayer, asking God to guide his efforts so that God is both glorified and the people are edified. If that's done in prayer and with sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, what shall we say then when it's time for the service to begin? Shall we then take the work of that week and ignore it? You know, is it to be replaced by spontaneity, arguing that the work of the Spirit throughout the week is to be ignored in favor of the supposed work of the Spirit in the spontaneous moment? I mean, surely godly preparation led by the Holy Spirit, most specifically when it's done to the glory of Christ and in faithfulness to the word of God, is being led by the Spirit. 
Let me say one more thing about spontaneity. As I've observed it in churches that practice, you know, spontaneous actions, I have found that it's the same people over and over again dominating the church, and it stops being spontaneous completely. I'm arguing for excellence in preparing a worship service. That doesn't leave out spontaneity. That's because if a church has a prayer altar and people come there, I mean, we might be surprised at how many people are healed and saved and renewed. But a worship service that operates according to an organized and predictable pattern gives a sense of what is to be expected as well as an ease of inviting non-believers to attend. I mean, we're not squeamish about what might happen. In short, I'm arguing for a well-thought-through order of service, or as others put it, a well-thought-through liturgy. You know, in the past, Christian teachers have thought through the gospel and how the truths of the gospel impact the way in which the service is ordered. See, I'm of the opinion that Isaiah's experience in the temple should mirror our approach in worship. I mean, the first thing says Isaiah's, I saw the Lord. So good worship begins with an anthem of praise. Next, says Isaiah, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. See, good worship then goes through a time of confession of sins. After that, a tongue from the altar is applied to Isaiah's lips so that his sin is atoned for. In that sense, all of God's people need to hear the words of Scripture that through Christ's one sacrifice, all our sins are forgiven. And with that, the songs, the prayer, the reading of Scripture, and the preaching of the Word is given prominence. For we have been invited behind the veil into the Holy of Holies through the broken body of our Lord. Come, let us worship. Thanks for a great series, John. You know, I know there's people on both sides of the issue regarding worship, those who want predictability and those who want freedom. Does it need to be one or the other? Well, yeah, see, that's Ben, that's just so well said. I mean, <laughs> even the question itself should be the answer. I don't think it has to be one or the other. I mean, we we can be open to God's Spirit. And, uh, you know, I mean, if, let's say, there is a time of national crisis, we may want to change, you know, what we're doing on Sunday. And so our whole prayer ministry changes or, you know, something of that nature. I mean, it can change things. But, you know, my concern has been that if everything is just a fly-by-night thing, in the end of the day, we'll find that fewer and fewer non-Christians show up because it just tends to be straining and embarrassing. So I think that the more we plan our worship services, uh, the better we're going to be uh, in terms of coming to terms with the greatness of God among us. So that'd be my sense. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. As cherished children of God, we all share the great commission to spread the gospel across the globe. This is no simple command, but if we partner with each other, we stand a much greater chance of enriching the lives of many with the good news of Jesus Christ. This month to commemorate the importance of this partnership, Back to the Bible Canada is celebrating our monthly partners who bless this ministry with their consistent gifts. Thank you so much for your continued support. Our Bible teaching and engagement resources simply cannot exist without it. By donating monthly, you join our 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner Program and gain access to all its unique benefits. To find out more about these exclusive benefits or to become an 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner, 
Just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.